Welcome to What the Fuck Biology. Last episode, I asked my guest Neha Vissa if there was a scientist who changed the way that she thinks about science. She talked about her undergraduate professors and how important they were to her personal development as a scientist. If you missed that episode, go back and listen to it. Shneha and I had a great chat about the critters that get carried around on mountain pine beetles and what that means for the forest health of Western North America. Like Shneha, I also maintain friendships with many of my old body professors from undergrad. In fact, we heard from one of them in episode two, What the Fuck Biologist Rachel Carson. If you missed that one, go back and check it out. It's such a great episode. My guests and I discuss the life and legacy of Rachel Carson. The full interviews of four of the guests are available on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTFbiology. For just a buck a month, you can get access to not only those full interviews, but a bunch of other awesome bonus content. Your support makes this show possible, so thank you. For this episode, I decided to play the full interview of Dr. Gene Bosniak that he and I recorded for the Rachel Carson episode. Boz, as he is called by students and faculty alike, is a retired professor of botany at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. Boz has a superpower. He can make a person question their belief system and confront their assumptions without offending the person in question. There has been some people that do take offense to be calling a Jew chauvinist, but I think that most people walk away from conversations with Boz realizing, probably for the first time, that they have biases towards certain life forms at the expense of others. Boz and I talked a lot about biases, but lots of other stuff too, like how snail parasites connect to the Soviet Union and how the Christianizing of Europe resulted in ecosystem destruction. So now, Gene Bosniak. What the fuck, biologist? Thanks for doing this interview, Boz. You're welcome. Can you state your name and what you do? I'm Gene Bosniak, and uh, I'm a retired botany professor after teaching for 45 years at Weber State University. Uh Which is where I did my undergrad. Uh Uh-huh. You designed a class called Environment Appreciation, right? Right. Should I give you the genesis of the course? Yeah, that would be great. Okay. I have to go back to the decade of the 1960s which was a fantastic decade for environmental awareness. That was a formative decade for me because I left high school in 1960 and I came away at the end of that decade with a Ph.D. So it was very formative for me. And uh, I uh, did did my Ph.D. work at Washington University. And the chairman of the Department of Botany there was Barry Commoner, who was, very okay. influential in, in my uh, development. He was, Time Magazine did a cover story on him and called him the Paul Revere of ecology. Even though he wasn't oh, wow. a trained ecologist, but he was an activist and uh, mm. very sharp and, uh, uh, like I said, was very, very influential in my development. And he inculcated in me a an interest in environmental awareness. And that's what I brought to Weber State. When I came to Weber State, folks knew that I had some background and connection with Barry Commoner, and so they said, why don't you develop a a course in uh, environmental science? And I said, I don't want to do an environmental science course. And they asked me why, and I said, I I felt that environmental awareness had to be broader than just environmental science. It wasn't just scientists that uh, 
were contributing to decisions, but uh, other disciplines as well. So in making the evolution from environmental science to something else broader than that, I thought, why not environment appreciation, using the noun, not the adjective. Uh, after all, there was a, an art appreciation class, a music appreciation class, and uh, I thought, why not environment appreciation? The therein was the crux of the need for environmental awareness. We didn't appreciate the environment enough. Obviously, understanding the environment was key to appreciating it. So I could contribute from the science end of things, but I wanted it to include other disciplines and sub-disciplines from the mm -hmm. humanities, from the social sciences, from engineering, virtually from any discipline. I felt that they had a stake in assessing environmental problems and contributing to solutions to them. So that's why the Environment Appreciation Course was named as it was. So that was the, the class that began in 1971, and I taught it for 45 years. Yeah, that's a that's a great story. I never actually knew where it came from. I knew how influential yeah. it was for so many students, but I didn't know that that's um, how it came to be. Well, it was influential for me, too, because I had a chance then to espouse many of the things that Barry Commoner taught me and, and others. So you've literally educated thousands of students about um, appreciating environmental issues. The 1960s, as I said, was a very important decade in the history of the environmental movement in this country. That was the third wave or peak of environmental consciousness awareness in this country. One was in the 1800s. It took a long time to develop that one uh, into the start of the 20th century. And then it ended with the First World War. World wars tend to assuage interest in environmentalism. We had this, uh, the second one during the 1930s, during the Dust Bowl. Uh, we had a lot of species that were, I recall, the story of the passenger pigeon. In the oh, yes. Huge yeah. flocks of passenger pigeons that uh, were market hunted. And we didn't right. think and we could ever hunt them out, but we did. Yeah, we but managed. these flocks, when they would fly by, would, like, block out the sun for hours. Exactly. And, and we thought, there's no way we could have a significant impact on the numbers of the passenger pigeons. But in in a few years, the, those flocks disappeared, and yep. the last passenger pigeon died in the Cincinnati Zoo. Well, so there was a second peak of environmental consciousness in the 1930s, and then that ended with the Second World War. Right. You know, when it comes to a world war, we all all hands on deck and conservation be damned. We need resources. So this third peak was an interesting one. That was the one that started in the in the 60s with uh, Rachel Carson's uh, 62 publication of Silent Spring. And as I mentioned, there are other publications that came along in that uh, period that launched this third peak of environmental awareness. Unlike the other wars, there was an important war in this third peak that didn't squelch the our appreciation of environmental issues, but instead enhanced it, and that was the Vietnam War and Agent Orange. That's when right. the environmental environmental movement became kind of a uh, 
a uh, an awareness of environmental health issues, and that was an important aspect of uh, the environmental awareness. Yeah, because that Agent Orange, it could like decimate huge areas of tropical rainforest, right? Yeah, and that's what it was designed to do. It had no idea what it was doing to humans. Turns out it was causing leukemia, heart disease, lymphoma, birth defects, and all sorts of other long-term health problems. The Vietnam government estimates that 4 million people have been affected by Agent Orange. There have been tons of legal action against the U.S. and other governments that use the herbicide. About 12,000 square miles, or about 31,000 square kilometers, for those of you that like easy math, of Vietnam forests were destroyed with Agent Orange. This toxin bioaccumulates, meaning that it is magnified roughly 10 times at every step of the food chain. An estimated 1 million Vietnamese are disabled due to Agent Orange use still. Birth defects happen more than twice as often in Vietnam than other parts of the world. So yeah... This stuff is really awful. This unintentional experiment showed us that the shit that we spray around kills stuff, even humans. And people were not okay with this. Agent Orange kept environmentalism in people's minds, even through a war. And that might have even helped fuel this third wave of environmentalism that Boz is talking about. It was started by Rachel Carson with her Silent Spring in 1962. That's but there right. were other folks that were equally influential in that decade, including my, my, one of my mentors, Barry Commoner. Uh, Commoner wrote a book called The Closing Circle, which he published in 1971. We had discussed a lot of the content of that course, both informally and formally with Commoner in the uh, middle part of the 1960s when I was working on my PhD. Excellent. And he would he would bring in uh, other folks like Paul Ehrlich and Ian McCard, who had also published influential books in the 60s. So it was uh, it was an interesting period in uh, this country's history. And so I was happy to have an opportunity to uh, discuss many of these ideas in that environment appreciation class. Awesome. Okay. So basically, what was kind of the structure? What were like the learning objectives of this course? The first third of the course easily was non-science, and it took me a while to get over the guilt of giving life science credit for something that I was not teaching, <laughs> basically uh, <laughs> something broader than the life sciences. And so my uh, thinking was I would draw on resources, faculty resources from across campus and other disciplines after I told them what I uh, wanted to achieve in the course which was basically mm-hmm. a, an awareness of environmental issues from every disciplinary uh, view possible. And where people didn't think there was a connection, there always is a connection between whatever yeah. it is they do and uh, assessing environmental issues and coming up with the solutions to complex problems. So the first third of the course, was the objectives were simply to broaden the awareness to include disciplines and subdisciplines that people didn't think had a stake in environmental issues. And so we discussed issues like perceptions of, of nature by humans, the inclusionist versus exclusionist thinking uh, or philosophies, and how that has uh, evolved over time. 
the critical need to have us start thinking about uh, humans in nature rather he, rather than humans and nature. Doing things like discussing the quality of the environment. Can we define the quality environment? Those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, covering the history of, of the environmental movement. Where did we get our ideas? And how did they evolve over time? A lot of folks, uh, a lot of the students at that time felt that this was a very new thing. Well, it really is. Right. Environmentalism, ecology is older than the term ecology itself. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I think it, it behooves us to take a look at that history. Uh, and uh, so we went back to biblical times in, in discussing mm. the view that humans had and as recorded in the Bible, the meaning of wilderness, for example. In the uh, Old Testament, there was something like, and somebody's actually gone ahead and counted references to wilderness in the Old Testament, and they came up with a count of 245 references, where wilderness is, is regarded as kind of an inhospitable, ugly, life-threatening environment, something to be feared. Well, in the biblical context, that was true of the desert. If you were banished to the desert, particularly if you were bad and banished to the wilderness, you may not survive. Right. It's basically uh, a death sentence. But things started to change. In the New Testament, apparently, there are only 35 such references to wilderness as being inhospitable. And then we talked about how that idea was taken to Europe during Christianizing of other parts of the world. And the uh, idea of wilderness in the European context, particularly in Northern European context, was the forest. Forest was wilderness, and it was where evil lurked. Mm -hmm. To this day, we talk mm -hmm. about where does the big bad wolf reside? Right, yeah. I'm thinking back to the all the Disney movies of my childhood, and yeah. you're running through the forest, and there's these exactly. gnarly trees that are going to jump out and get you. Right, and mm -hmm. and... One of the things that uh, I like to point out to students was that the forest was wilderness, and in the wilderness is where pagan rituals took place. And if you were going to Christianize a pagan society, the way to do it is to destroy their temples. So you destroyed right. the forest. We've done that throughout history. You know, you you destroy people's temples, mm -hmm. and so they have nowhere to practice their their religion. Right. If you wanted them to change that religion. So that was Europe, and the seeds of environmentalism were actually sown in Europe before Europeans came to North America. Uh, we like to think that North America was uh, founded by Europeans who developed this rugged individualism that uh, we're so noted for. Indigenous people have been here for tens of thousands of years before us white people showed up and started fucking things up. Recently, I was sitting in a Zoom meeting that we're all sick of doing, and I was listening to a leader of the Zuni tribe talk about the cultural importance of the Zuni River and how the white man's greed has stopped the river flowing. The Zuni people's gateway to Zuni heaven is found at the confluence of the Zuni and Little Colorado Rivers in Arizona. The Zuni River has been dammed, which has stopped the water from reaching the Little Colorado River. Now the Zuni people have no gateway to their heaven. We ruined that. As this Zuni leader was talking about how the politics and economics of the white man have prevented his people from reaching their afterlife, I was thinking about religious competition. In order to get a person to change religions, all you got to do is destroy where that religion is practiced. That happened in the forests of Europe when pagans were Christianized, and we've done that here in the Americas too. 
We've destroyed their temples, which are really natural ecosystems. And we've left millions of people stranded. What I learned from that Zuni leader is respect and preservation of our fellow man and cultural diversity also means respecting and preserving natural resources, not to be exploited, but to be reverenced. And this land seemed to be, in terms of resources, so plentiful, there was no way we imagined that one day we'd be talking about destroying large tracts of this wilderness. But indeed, Mm -hmm. we did. But right. There were folks in Europe that were drawing attention to wilderness issues and environmentalism uh, in terms of the seeds of environmentalism. I like to point out the uh, French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who uh, wrote an interesting book in 1754 called Discourse on the Origins and Foundations of Inequality Among Men. And uh, he wrote then very much like people were writing in the 1960s. He challenged the belief that better technologies, material wealth, knowledge would lead to improvement of humanity and morality. Again, a lot of the early environmentalists thought that way, and we're talking about uh, 18th century Europe. So it isn't as if we discovered or invented or developed environmentalism in this country or in this continent, but that wasn't the case. It was always there. Mm -hmm. So this duality between environmentalism and rugged individualism and exploitation of resources has been there right from the very beginning. And the pendulum swings from one to the other, in a sense. General education courses, we had to fulfill certain kinds of uh, outcomes, make sure that we, we had addressed those since it was a general education class. So uh, there were some basic fundamental biological uh, principles that we had to cover. But I always took the approach that we needed to bring that into uh, the environmental context as much as possible, whatever the biological topics happen to be. Because it is important to put these issues in their proper context. And exactly. So I know that when I took that class as an undergrad, I was a geology major, And I Mm kind of wasn't really happy in geology, and I was kind of like, this stuff's interesting, and it's okay. And I took environment appreciation, and I was like, holy shit, holy shit, this is so awesome. And, like, that day, I went to the botany department and changed my major. Um, and, (laughs) And I really credit that course for setting me along this this path in academia to to study botany, um, which got me to go on to finish my, or to do my PhD, which hopefully someday I'll finish. It really launched me. So, so thank you so much for having that be such an important class. Oh, you're, you're, um, you're welcome. And that's, that was the, I felt that that was a good vehicle to get students to be turned on to environmental awareness and, and want to learn more about the science of uh, the environment. And, uh, so it became an important course for uh, recruitment from across mm-hmm. campus. Yeah, I certainly know that there's a lot of people um, in the botany department that, that, that that's exactly what happened. You yeah. roped them in. <laughs> I, I, still um, have, I still have people in the community uh, that say, you know, I took that class 30 years ago. And, you know, there's one thing I remember about that class, and that was when you said that there was no such thing as a way. And they said, 30 years yeah. ago, you may, you said that, and I still think that. 
Yeah, so what does that mean? There is no away. Okay, well, again, this basically comes out of Barry Commoner's uh, closing circle because he tries to, uh, and I give him a lot of credit for taking fairly difficult concepts, biology, and communicating those to lay people. He was he was very gifted at that. And I felt that I needed to follow that kind of a uh, pattern if I could. And mm-hmm. so uh, I talk about laws of ecology. These laws would be uh, laws as if uh, we were talking to lay people. I distilled everything I knew about ecology into four general laws of ecology in layman's terms. Uh, the first one was that everything is connected to everything else, okay? Mm-hmm. And then I would spend probably three lectures on these four laws of ecology uh, by way of example. Uh, everything is connected to everything else. And I tried to come up with uh, some somewhat obtuse examples just to get students to think. For example, I asked the question, what is the connection between, if everything is connected to everything else, then there's a connection between any two apparently desperate things. And I said, what is the connection between Soviet foreign policy and schistosomiasis? And first of all, students would say, what the hell is schistosomiasis? So we'd have to (laughs) uh, discuss that. And uh, Mm -hmm. I said that it was, uh, you know, it was... uh, Another name for it is Bilharzia, and it's very common in the tropics, a disease that uh, many people died from. And uh, it's associated with snails. Snails are an intermediate host for this parasite. But then students will say, well, there, there's no connection between that and Soviet foreign policy. And uh, so the uh, answer to that was that I was getting at the development of the Aswan High Dam. The Egyptians wanted this dam built, and they shimmied up to the Soviet, and the Soviet engineers built the dam rather than Western engineers. So mm-hmm. when they built the dam, they stopped or slowed down the flow of water in the Nile and its tributaries, mm-hmm. and that the snail uh, population exploded, and we had uh, an outbreak of schistosomiasis and killed a lot of people. So it's the connection was just the Samias's habitat exploded with the construction of the Aswan High Dam, and so there was a connection between Soviet foreign policy and just the Samias's. Okay, so that was the first law of ecology. The second was there everything must go somewhere. There is no away. And I would tell right. students that uh, I'm not for censorship of anything really, except I said if if I had the power, I would do away with that word, away. I'd go in every dictionary and rub it out so that we wouldn't (laughs) use it. Because there is no such thing as away. You don't throw anything away because there is no such place or thing. I think that Boz appreciates the irony here. Doing away with the word away. I took marine biology from Boz as an undergrad. We had to give this little presentation about some topic. I chose plastics in the ocean because, hey, there will be lots of information about that. And yeah, there was lots of information about that. It was also so depressing. So keep in mind as you put your groceries in plastic bags or you drink from a plastic straw that there is no away. Many countries, including Canada, hi Canada, I miss you, are developing strategies to eliminate single-use plastics. 
and uh, right. so lots of lots of examples of of that. For and the one I used extensively was pesticides and that accumulation in uh, biological systems. What Rachel Carson was talking about in, in Silent Spring, the biological mm-hmm. magnification, and students need to understand how that takes place. How is it that DDT or any molecule that meets two important criteria, one that is not broken down or metabolized by the body or mm-hmm. excreted by the body. And if you get something like DDT, which is fat soluble, mm-hmm. it's going to get absorbed by the smallest of things, uh, algae, and then through the food chain it goes and it gets concentrated about 10 times with every trophic level transfer. A little lonely alga picks up a molecule of DDT stores it in its lipid membrane. Small zooplankton eat the alga, and they have to eat 10 times the amount because they, you know, I I use 10% energy conversion with every Uh energy trophic level transfer uh, as kind of the the average. Many organisms are above that, and many are below that. But using 10% so that math comes out fairly obvious. Right. So they accumulate all, you know, 10 molecules of DDT because 90% of what they consume is lost in terms of heat or weight. Mm -hmm. And so there's a tenfold increase in the amount of DDT in the small zooplankton, which are fed upon by large zooplankton. So you have another 10%. Small fish eat the large zooplankton. Large fish eat the small fish. And finally, we eat the tuna. And lo and behold, we have high levels of mercury in our tuna right. uh, yep. or or mercury or, or DDT or whatever, as long as those yep. two criteria are met. And so, uh, like I said to the students that, you know, we used to throw mercury into the ocean and uh, then four years later, we'd serve it up as a, as a mercury sandwich. <laughs> Would you like mercury or DDT for your lunch? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, third law of ecology was nature knows best. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, lots of examples of that. And the fourth law, in layman's terms, was there is no such thing as a free lunch. That there's right. always a, a cost involved, in, right. and uh, uh, th- that also holds for economics. It's sort of a law of economics as well. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Right. I think so those, economics and ecology are very interlinked. Exactly, and that's why I I, I used to uh, really enjoy the, a lecture from Dr. Richard Alston, who's an economist at Weber, and he was a feisty, controversial guy. And you know, he'd come to the class and say everything that Bosniak taught you is old crap, and let me tell, <laughs> tell it like it is. And the students wondered why I would keep inviting him. <laughs> right, <laughs> but we had a great relationship, and we, you know. It, it was it was thought provoking, and I would search out for faculty that were thought provoking. That was important right. to that class. Uh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, that was uh, one yeah. of the foundational classes that taught me how to think like a scientist. Uh huh. Healthy skepticism is very very important. Yep. So, um, and then of course uh, uh, I would get on uh, bandwagons like uh, my primary production. Uh, lecture, you know, uh, zo chauvinism. Oh, yeah, I wanted to ask you what zo chauvinism is. Okay, well, some people used to call it plant blindness, where mm-hmm. uh, we uh, talk about natural ecosystems and for, forget that plants are even involved in them. 
Uh, right, even yeah. though they're the foundation. Exactly. We, we, you know, and I think most biologists are guilty of perpetuating a good deal of that bias. Uh, mm-hmm. And the examples I use were, you know, our fascination with dinosaurs. Why are we fascinated with dinosaurs? They're extinct. Right. They're gone. Right. Why do we spend so much time teaching our kids to be fascinated with large, charismatic animals? And which ones are we most fascinated with? The predators. T-Rex right. is not the biggest, but he's the meanest, right? We, <laughs> right. we, love, we love blood and gore. Right, uh, yeah. When I lived in, uh, in Kenya for a year and a half in East Africa, Mm-hmm. Uh, I became fascinated with the story of the Adamsons, George and Joy Adamson, who had adopted a, a lion cub. Uh, mm-hmm. What happened was George Adamson was a uh, conservation officer, a uh, mm-hmm. field-type guy, and farmers complained that lions were uh, marauding their cattle. So he went and he shot this lioness. Well, it turned out that she had three cubs mm. that were orphaned. So George feels sorry for these three cubs. He takes them home. And he and his wife start raising them, <laughs> bottle feeding them. Yeah. Two of them were two of them were pretty strong, and uh, they decided to sell them to the uh, Frankfurt Zoo. And the runt of the litter, the third one, they uh-huh. gave her a name, which was a mistake. They named yeah. her Elsa. And Elsa, uh, as she grew up, she she was obviously their pet, but she got bigger and bigger and bigger and started tearing up the furniture. And then they they decided that Elsa was born to be free. She was born free and she has the right to live free. Well, how do you teach Elsa to live off the land if she's been living in your living room? And they took Elsa out into the wilds and released her and followed her and so on. And, and uh, oh, did that, the experiences of the Adamsons tug at our heartstrings. And yeah. they wrote three books about that experience. The first one was called Born Free. Mm-hmm. A movie was, uh, Hollywood got a hold of this because Born Free was top of the, the charts and the reading list. Uh, mm-hmm. The television series was developed called Born Free. A song was written and it won an Academy Award. Born free, as free as the wind blows. Anyway, the whole world was talking about Elsa the Lioness. But at no place in the three books, in the movie, in the TV series, or the song, was there any reference made to how many antelope the Adamsons shot so that Elsa could live off the wild? To me, that was interesting. Here, our hearts were beating for the predator, and we thought nothing of how many herbivores the antelope were shot. Now, if our hearts don't bleed for the antelope, how are they going to bleed for the plants that sustain the antelope? You see this dilution of interest as we go down this food chain. I right. think it's fascinating. And it's wrong. It's wrong to spend, give so much attention to the predators and nothing to the primary producers. So, you know, again, you're going to thin that forest around my house. They've marked all the trees that they're going to cut down. I want to cry when I see a, a tree with a spray paint line on that because that, yep. that creature is going to die. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, that that's the whole idea behind this, what I call zoshamanism. Uh, a, an anti-plant bias and right. a pro-animal bias. And mm-hmm. my animal ecology friends were a little upset with me using that term. And then I point out to them that 
within their own discipline of animal biology, zoology. They're not fair in how they teach about animals. Why is it that we uh, have so many mammalogists on the faculty and we may have one, if any, insect biologist? And insects right. are much more abundant than the mammals. Exactly. They're more species. <laughs> There's more individuals. <laughs> I, I love to talk about these biases that we have because I'm I'm all for biocentric equality, very right. much like <laughs> right. very much like social equality. Yeah, and we need and we need to teach the the golden rule as it applies to all species, not just certain select ones that we like. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, not just Homo sapiens, but every yeah. species on the earth. And if we did have that, we would care more about when species go extinct. Exactly. And if there, if we had people truly understand how nature works, we would appreciate that we're dependent on nature. Yeah. There's an interdependence between humans and nature and we can't we can't afford to keep teaching that nature was out there simply to serve man that's exactly right and you know that gets back to what you were saying earlier is that there is no separation between humans and nature humans are part of nature and we're not yeah, as important as we think we are well we are important but in a in a negative sense yes yeah so that that's that's another area that I love to uh, bring into that class and others. All classes, I, I like to talk about the lack of biocentric equality. I also talk about the biases that we have towards land organisms versus aquatic ones. Right. That's why, you know, in my marine biology class, I don't talk about Earth. I talk about the planet ocean. Right. We're the, planet, <laughs> we're the blue planet, and we're mostly ocean. Yep. What do we use the yep. oceans for? To dump. Well, stuff. they're kind of our garbage dump, yeah. That's our garbage <laughs> dump. The attention of students that, hey, we use that for uh, food supply. So how do you reconcile using the oceans to dump your waste, especially the nastiest waste you can think of, and at the same yeah. time fish out of there and eat whatever you fish for? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't make a sandwich on your toilet. Exactly. That's what I say, uh, and I've used that. Actually, with students, I said, you wouldn't store your food in your toilet, would you? Right. And they're probably like, oh, yes, no. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what we're doing, really. Exactly. So we have these biases that that I like to talk about. You know, Uh, we have a northern hemisphere bias versus a southern hemisphere bias. Yep. Because we're we're mostly land biased and most of the land is in the northern hemisphere. Also colonialism. Check out Jared Diamond's book Guns, Germs, and Steel for a convincing hypothesis that white supremacy exists only because of an accident of geography. Eurasia is the only continent that has an east-west axis which gave advantage to those people, white people, who traded plants across long geographic distances. Basically, when you move plants and animals long distance north to south, they become ill-adapted to environmental conditions. But that's less of an issue for east to west movement. So, sorry, white people. It's just an accident that you've had the advantage for most of human history. You're not actually that special. But then that gives us pause to ask questions that I do, like, uh, what's the world's most abundant mammal? I ask students, you know, and I get all kinds of answers on that one. And uh, mm-hmm. then they say, well, what, what are you driving at? And I said, well, 
I don't know this certain because we don't we don't have good census work in the southern hemisphere, but the crab eater seal that find all around the Antarctic, and that's a pretty big continent actually, is very, very abundant. I don't know how abundant it is, but I put my money on the crab eater seal as being the most abundant mammal on the face of the earth. But that that's my answer. I don't I don't have proof of it, but right. I would like I'd like to know just how many, uh, what the biomass of crab-eater seals is. And compared to any other species in the Northern Hemisphere, I would still put my money on uh, on the crab-eater seal. Also, what's the world's most abundant bird? One of the candidates in my mind is the Wilson storm petrel. The petrels are mostly Southern Hemisphere birds. They're pretty common and but they're also very secretive they nest on land of course but mm-hmm. they're very secretive they're nocturnal and what mm-hmm. do we know about nocturnal birds from the southern hemisphere that spend most of their time on and in the ocean right well you know, not much <laughs> not, not much so much about the numbers you know we just know that that mariners talk about how plentiful they are yeah we know that they're pretty plentiful we don't know just don't know how plentiful but anyway, that's where I put my money on the most abundant bird in the world. Hmm. And we don't know about that because we have these other biases that we teach. Right. I don't know if I ever told you the story. When I was taking biochemistry, we spent, oh, probably three weeks talking about hemoglobin. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we used it as a, as a model for um, enzymes and, and how, you know, they attach to carbon dioxide and they're less efficient. But when they're oxygen and they're fine, and I was sitting there the whole time like, what about Rubisco? Rubisco, for non-plant nerds, is one of the enzymes that makes photosynthesis happen. It sticks to carbon dioxide to bust it apart so that sugars can be made. Now, under certain conditions, it can also stick to oxygen, which cannot be busted apart to be made into sugar. So it's similar to hemoglobin in that way, it attaches to both carbon dioxide and oxygen. And this is important to understand because that's how those two gases move around in our blood and most, but not all, other animals. Rubisco is way more abundant than hemoglobin, though. But we talk about hemoglobin way more because, well, juice chauvinism. I actually give a, uh, in that environment class and in talks that I've given, I actually give the students a, a little survey that I drew up, one page survey where I ask them things like, what's the most abundant protein in the world? And all oh, <laughs> you know, you, you can imagine what sorts of answers I get there. Well, and, I remember uh, one, one class uh, uh, that I was in, a girl said cow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bees. yeah <laughs> and I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And you see, you see these biases, and and like your your biochemistry teacher, you know the biases, you know spending all that time. I'm not saying hem- studying hemoglobin is a bad thing, but to spend that kind of time versus other sorts of things that are equally or more important is, mm-hmm. uh, I think, uh, a shortcoming. Right. It, it gets worse though, Boz. It gets worse. At the end, uh, we had our, like, our review before the final exam, and Clint raised his hand and said, how come we didn't talk about photosynthesis? And the instructor said, well, it's not that important. Oh. <laughs> I almost threw a chair at him. Yeah. Like, literally, yeah. Cynthia had to grab my arm and pull me back down. <laughs> 
And, and, and again, this is someone who should know better, mm-hmm. uh, but doesn't. And these biases are so overt that it, it just behooves us to uh, bring to people's attention that we're not doing a very good job, especially when we're trying to understand how nature works. Right. We have these biases that leads to a skewed explanation of how nature works. Right. Yep. And that has really um, important implications when we're getting into, you know, talking about how we're going to mitigate the effects of climate change. Well, if we don't know how things work, how can we do something to shift how it works? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Another one I asked in my survey, I asked students, what was the mode of obtaining food called before we began to wimpify or, I say sorry, domesticate plants and animals? What do we call that mode of obtaining food? And the answer always is hunter-gatherer. And I said, no, 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 that wasn't the case. It was gatherer-hunter. And then he said, what do you want? Hunting has always been a higher-risk venture, as something that the men did after they planned the hunt for three days and took another three to execute it, another three days to bring the meat home. In the meantime, women would gather food, plant resources, something mm-hmm. that we say is not important <laughs> to sustain us. <laughs> right, but it's like, okay, well, what, were, what was everybody eating for those nine days while you guys were planning and executing exactly, and you know. then... There's now evidence that at least in some cultures, in the ancient Americas, women were great hunters too. Tombs were found of young adult women surrounded by weapons and skeletons of their prey. And speaking of biases, the researchers that discovered these tombs had a hard time arguing that these were hunters rather than the wives of hunters or some bullshit. If the human skeleton was of a young adult man, well... I don't think that anyone would question his role in society. Yeah, the, the amount of calories cl- um, from plant and animal resources yes. were certainly... So our, our language is replete with these biases, and mm-hmm. biologists are not immune from these biases. Uh, Absolutely. We use the word, word uh, wildlife. I ask students, what does that mean to you? And obviously it means some some predator, you know. Uh, And to me, I I, I say it means a flower. And they say, oh, come on, that's not wildlife. Why not? (laughs) Why not? It's alive. It lives in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, so much for uh, biases in biology. Yeah. People keep saying that, you know, science is unbiased, but that's bullshit. Like, yeah. Every everything, every everybody, every field, everything has bias. Right, and, and if you can recognize that, that's the first step in correcting inequality, recognizing that that they exist, that these biases mm-hmm. exist. Yep. Um, we seem to have an insatiable need to create hierarchies. Biologists do that all the time. Mm-hmm. We also have such hierarchies created in our social construct, uh, and and this leads to inequalities because when you start creating hierarchies, you like definition, something put, has to be higher and something has to right, be lower. And, and have a higher value, it seems. Mm-hmm. So yep. the values are not equal. So okay. that's the way we treat people as well as wildlife. Mm-hmm. Wildlife meaning all life. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I want to get your thoughts about what has happened to environmental issues in the last four years. We've had our hands tied and our lips sealed 
mm-hmm. at a time when just the opposite should occur. Right. All because of misinformation and politics. I went to the uh, scientists' march in Washington, uh, you know, four years ago, and uh, Dennis Hayes, who started the uh, Earth Day movement, mm-hmm. spoke. He spoke, and he was almost despondent about the state of environmental awareness as a result of uh, uh, what was happening in Washington. And four years down the road, we're worse off than we were ever. So yeah. we've got. We've got to do a lot to recover yesterday, and it's going to take quite an effort. In a world of misinformation, it's become part of our culture to misinform. And the social media has, on the one hand, it's been great because you can find all kinds of of answers to all kinds of questions. But whether those answers are correct or not. Exactly, and, and that has set back education. It's frightening. It's very, in retrospect, we've lost a tremendous amount of ground. And it's going to take <laughs> more than four years, I believe, to recover. Yeah, absolutely. From the last, from the last four. Yeah. Because when something gets ingrained into in the culture, it's tough. It's tough to deal with. People are learning now. They're learning things that are incorrect. And so we have to de-educate them and then re-educate them. Yeah. Undoing the mistakes. Is, is going to be very, very difficult and time-consuming. Yeah, and I don't know if, if we're ever going to be able to get back to where we were. Yeah, yeah. one wants to be pretty <laughs> pessimistic. Yep. Uh, climate change is a good case in point. Right. We don't have enough time. You know, right. Education takes a long time, and re-education mm-hmm. is going to take longer. And mm-hmm. we've, got to, we've got to make some decisions as a uh, society fairly quickly. Yeah. And it has to be global. It, exactly. And do you know how hard it is to get people to cooperate? <laughs> yes. Yes, it's I really do. hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we'll do the best we can, but, you know, it's, yeah, it's kind of like there's not there's not a lot of hope. I, I'd like <laughs> to send, end this on a positive note, but, like, <laughs> there's not one. Well, I know, I know, but uh, we have to. <laughs> We have to keep trying, no matter how difficult. Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, because not only do do like our lives depend on it, and the lives of our kids and our grandkids, but like the lives of ponderosa pine and the sunflower and the desert tortoise, and you know all the critters that all the other wildlife. Yes. Yeah. In the in the life sense of the word, depend on what we do. Exactly. Exactly. And so hopefully all, we all can get. Yes. Yeah. It is. And, you know, we can't just throw up our hands and give up because I think that would be doing a huge disservice to society and our planet. So we need to recruit more biologists, specifically botanists. Yes, (laughs) I agree. Uh, So we we can talk about photosynthesis in biochemistry classes. That would be great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, Boz, in the last few years, I've worked a lot with uh, high school students. Uh-huh. And I had one of my – I've had two students actually want to be botanists because of me. And so – And yeah. so really, it's that everything's connected. So those two kids yeah. that have decided to become botanists, they become botanists because of, because of you. So. Well, 
that's good to hear, and that's, that's what's important. And that's, you know, we don't want to end on a very positive note. That is what is positive. And that's what, what drove me to stay in this game for as long as I did. Because there is hope when, when you look back and see how many people you've influenced and mm-hmm. know that they can influence that many more. Education is the name of the game. Thank you so much to Dr. Jean Bosniak, or just plain old Boz. Thank you to my high school students and their teachers that I've been privileged to work with for the past four years and counting. Music this episode is by Dr. Ron Deckert, who can be found on SoundCloud. A link is in the show notes. Not only is Ron the musical mastermind behind this show, he's also a researcher who studies plant-associated fungi. In the next episode, he and I talk about the usually helpful fungal friends hanging out inside of plant tissue. That episode will be released on March 3rd. Links to my sources are also found in the show notes. And please remember to tell a friend or an enemy to listen to the show.